You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 78 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. When we are looking at restructuring a business, we have quite a few options. We could decide not to do anything and to just wait, especially if you're close to the 15-year threshold. We could decide to leave the entities as they are and just bring new shareholders or partners in, maybe even through an IPO. The third option is to sell the business from the old entity to a new one. The advantage of this is that we might be able to claim the 50% CGT discount in Division 115 and hopefully also the small business CGT concessions in Division 152. But sometimes we don't qualify for either of these. For example, because the old entity is a company and hence doesn't get a 50% CGT discount. Or maybe we fail the basic conditions. In that case, we need to look at the fourth option we have, and that is to apply a CGT rollover. We don't avoid paying tax on any capital gain just yet, but we postpone it and maybe can apply a discount or concession later on. So these CGT rollover provisions is what we will look into more today for a business restructure. Adrian Bailey of Cleary Hall in Sydney does a lot of work around business restructuring and kindly agreed to walk us through the CGT rollover provisions. I started by asking Adrian whether in every restructure one should at least consider two options, the CGT rollover provisions and the small business CGT concessions. Here's his answer. Yeah, that's right. And there are, I mean, there's, there's benefits to both and negatives to both in terms of which that you choose. Obviously, if you don't meet the small business concession requirements, then you're restricted to a rollover. But one of the issues with the traditional rollovers is that it is a rollover and you're carrying forward your traditional cost base. So if, for example, you're moving from a trust to a company uh, and you've got a historically low cost base in the trust and you're moving to a company for, for whatever reason, that cost base is then in the company. And from CGT concession perspective, companies don't get access to the discount capital gain. So straight away, you're in effect losing out some concessions there. One of the things that we talk about now is that the new rollover under 328G, which is the, the new small business rollover, as there is some opportunity there because you're allowed to pay consideration as part of the rollover, which in turn ensures that you have a cost base in whatever entity you're moving to. A long way of saying it is an either-or in terms of you've got to look at the client's situation and work out what is best for them in the long term. Do most rollovers bust the 15-year time period for the 15-year exemption? There is um, provision there that they, they do. Adrian expanded on this more after the interview. There are some rollovers that don't break the 15-year period. Examples are the same asset rollover in Division 126 in a relationship breakdown, for example, or the compulsory acquisition loss or destruction rollovers in subdivision 124B. But apart from these very few exceptions, most CGT rollovers break the 15-year period for the 15-year exemption, including the rollovers we are focusing on here, division 122A, 122B and 328G. So if our client is close to the 15 years and meets the basic conditions, it might be better to wait. Back to Adrian. What we're going to talk about in the, in the first instance is changing business structures, and we're going to concentrate on moving from trust to a company. 
with different reasons in terms of the client objectives as to what they want to do in terms of moving from a trust to a company. Quite often when a client reaches a certain size, it's more advantageous to be in a company in terms of from a business perspective. Is it? Because I have the impression that trading trusts are really popular. They are. Um, trading trusts are very popular in Australia because of a couple of different reasons. And the three ones we usually list are that they have access to the most CGT concessions because they get access to the discount plus any of the other concessions if they qualify. They offer asset protection. Trusts offer strong asset protection generally, depending on how they're drafted. And then also they are flexible, both in terms of tax and other things, in terms of changing the rules. Distributions. Distributions. You don't have to comply with the Corporations Act in terms of way that you do things, so like issue of shares in a company, you have to comply with Corporations Act. So there is a, those three reasons make, make them popular. However, there are some downsides to them, particularly with a discretionary trust in that you can't introduce other equity participants. So if you're getting to a stage where you need to bring in other owners into your business, can't do it from a discretionary trust, so then you might look to move to a company. Similarly, if you get to a, a certain size in terms of the size of your business and you're interacting with other businesses and other large companies, they're more comfortable in interacting with a company rather than interacting with a trust in a lot of circumstances. So quite often it's a commercial decision to move to a company. In looking at that, there are always a couple of different ways to skin a cat, as they say, and one of them is to use some of the rollovers to deal with any capital gains tax implications in moving from trust to a company. So is that most of the work you do? When you do rollover work, it's usually from a trust to a company, not the other way around? Up until the introduction of 328G, which came into the, in the last couple of years, The rollovers are restricted for moving from either a, a trust or a partnership or an individual to a company. Now you can move from a company to a trust under 328G, but before that you could only move into a company. So uh, most of the work that we do in that area is under the 122A or 122B, which is rolling over from something into a company. With the new provision in 328G, although there is more flexibility with it, there are also some downsides which really come from the drafting of the legislation in that it's very difficult to meet some of the requirements the way that the legislation is drafted. I understand, and I had a, was involved in some consultation with the Board of Taxation last week in relation to small business concessions and other items, that they recognise that there are those issues there, so there, there may be some redrafting there. But as, as it is in terms of 328G, it can be difficult to meet the requirements, which when you have difficulty often means that either You then look to perhaps get a ruling from the tax office, which obviously slows down the process in terms of waiting for that ruling to come back. So in, in terms of those sorts of restructures, it's predominantly the 122A and 122B. There is a, a, a reason to do a 328G, which we'll go through, which is the new rollover. And that's where we can try and get the best of both worlds. Because as I mentioned, one of the downsides of 122A or 122B is that we're carrying forward our cost base. Whereas with 328G, we can pay consideration and that consideration takes into account, is taken into account for our cost base in the new entity. So they've always been around in terms of legislation 122A and 122B. In terms of the conditions for them, they are quite similar. 122A deals with individuals or trustees. 122B is when you're moving from a partnership into a company. But the requirements are much the same. So for 122A, So you have to dispose of all of the assets of the business to a wholly owned company. The trust, which is transferring the assets, has to own all of the shares after transfer. So you can do that in one of two ways in a practical sense. You could have it either holding all of the shares currently and it's issued further shares as part of the rollover. Um, the tax office do accept that 
if you've got the trust holding the shares in our rollover company, I'll call it, and you don't issue further shares and that meets the requirements, however, it's generally safer to make sure that we have an issue of shares. And the issue of those shares must be non-redeemable shares and they must be equal to the market value of the assets that roll over. So that means if all the business assets are sitting in a trust at the moment, the shares can only go to the trust. And if all the business assets are held by a sole trader at the moment, all the shares have to go to the sole trader. You can't bring in a trust or take out a trust no. out of the structure or setup. That, that, that's right. And that, that is, again, as I said, there are positives and negatives to each of these approaches. And that is a potential negative in the future when we think about asset protection. Because one of the things that we want to do if we restructure is we want to either improve our asset protection or we want to leave skeletons in the closet and leave potential liabilities in the old entity, the old business. If we go from trust to company, all of the shares are held by the same trust. If something pops up in relation to the old entity, then the new, new company is owned by that trust, so potentially there's some risk there. And if we go from individual to company wholly owned by individual, then again, if that individual comes under attack, then potentially the company is at risk because they hold all of the shares. So that's one of the negatives with a 122A and 122B rollover. We don't have a, a clean skin entity that, in, in reality, from an asset protection point, that we're moving into. Um, so that's one of the secondary issues. Last requirement is that the, the trust or the individual that's transferring the business have to be an Australian resident. So we can't have a non-resident trust using this rollover to roll over Australian business assets, for example. It wouldn't work. 122B, which relates to partnerships, has very much the same rules, except um, you effectively swap trust for individual in terms of what the requirements are. And each of the partners in the same proportions have to get the same, same issue of the shares. So they have been around for a long time, 122A and 122B. I'd say you'd call them relatively uncontroversial in that those conditions... As long as you meet them, you're, you're going to meet the rollover requirements. We, of course, have to think about other tax issues, depending on what state that we're in. Um, stamp duty is still an issue, for example, for Queensland-based assets, or Queensland-based businesses, I should say, because stamp duty is still, business assets are still dutiable in Queensland or Western Australia, for example. New South Wales and Victoria business assets, as long as it's not also tied to property, are not dutiable. So in most circumstances, we can do a rollover without CGT and without stamp duty when we're dealing with New South Wales business assets. If we transfer real property, then we might be liable for stamp duty in New South Wales or Victoria. That, that, that's right. So, um, But that's, that's a major hindrance because you have to transfer all business assets. Mm. You can't leave the property behind because then you disqualify yeah. yourself for, yeah. for those uh, rollover provisions. And if you move the real property, then you attract stamp yeah. duty. It, it can be, and it can also be an issue because that we have to, you have to think about what is actually under the definition of real property as well. And mo most times you will think it's, well, it's land or it's a building, but it can also extend to things like fit out and fixtures. So if we have a very expensive fit out and that has to move over as part of the business, or if we have um, uh, our land value is low, but we have an expensive fixture such as a, a large wood mill, wood chopping mill or something like that, then that's, that will actually trigger that duty provision there. So you still so have to be careful. So what do clients do in that instance? Just cop the uh, stamp duty or is there a way to avoid that? Uh, usually there are other alternatives you can look at if the stamp duty cost is going to be too much. But generally it's weighing up in terms the benefit of, the, of the moving to the company as opposed to retaining mm. everything in the trust. 
Sometimes those are costs that just have to be worn. So with most things, you don't restructure for the sake of restructure. There's got to be other reasons for you to do it, mm. to do it other than tax. Mm. Um, but very often your clients also would have the real property in a different entity anyway for um, yep. asset protection purposes. Pre preferably they would, but that doesn't always happen. So as I said, it is a case-by-case -case scenario. You can't just approach a client and say, you're, you're going to do this. You've got to look at what their actual scenario is and what their objectives are. And of course, one of those objectives might be to sell out in the near future. And if they're going to do that, then there's probably no point in doing a restructure now. So it, it is a case of having a look at exactly where they're at and what they want to do. The other rollover that's come in, as I said, in the last few years is what they call the new small business rollover under, under subdivision 328G. So the purpose of this, or what the explanatory memorandum says when it was released, is that They mentioned that it's targeted at micro-businesses. However, the turnover requirement is quite high, so it's not really micro-businesses. Uh, it's 10, 10 million. So with that, the idea being that if we're established in a structure that is we've been established in and it's not effective for our needs and it's just something that's happened because we're a new business, then we have the opportunity to move over to a new, new entity. So with that, there are some obligations. And as I mentioned before, It's not just something that you, we can move from an individual or a trustee to a company. We can also move, if we wanted to, from a company to a trust, company to a partnership. Um, so we can effectively do the reverse as well. But where you probably most look at doing it or where, where we most look at doing it is still looking at moving from a trust to a company uh, or a partnership to a company. And the, and the reason that we look at it is because some of the advantages that come with it. However, because of the obligations under the legislation, there are some disadvantages. So I'll touch on the, the obligation or the requirements first to meet the rollover and then come back to a couple that prove the most difficult. The first one is that there has to be a genuine restructure of an ongoing business. And unfortunately, that is a bit, a bit of a trend in Treasury at the moment in terms of drafting legislation where they talk about economic concepts as opposed to black letter law. So that there is no definition of what is a genuine restructure of an ongoing business. So you have to look at the facts as to whether this is actually a, a genuine restructure as opposed to a restructure driven for other reasons such as tax reasons. There is a, and I'll come back to it, there is a safe harbour rule that we can use for genuine restructure. Um, but aside from that, it is a case of looking at, well, what are our, our other reasons for doing that? There are some examples which assist in the explanatory memorandum, and one of those is for the introduction of new equity participants, for example. However, the tax office has released some material on this and they believe that some of the things that they don't think are genuine are where you're doing it for succession planning purposes, which is not particularly helpful for clients because a lot of the time, and particularly if you're thinking of introducing new equity participants, that is succession planning. So why is there a differentiation between Whether that's a family that, member or yeah, not. Yeah. So that's the first major issue with the uh, rollover. The second one, each party is a small business entity, and that comes back to that turnover test, so that's easy enough to meet. Third one, same underlying economic ownership, which again is a bit of a rubbery term in terms of what is an underlying economic ownership, and, and I'll come back to that. The asset is an active asset. So if you've looked at small business concessions elsewhere, you, you'll be familiar with the term active asset. So it's one that's held for use or ready for use in a business. Or inherently, inherently connected. connected. Yeah, yeah. So what that means is that we can't use this rollover to transfer, for example, private company shares or units. It actually has to be an asset that's used in the business. Both transferor and transferee are residents, and they both choose to apply the rollover. 
the two main sticking areas we find in practice is that genuine restructure part and same underlying economic ownership, particularly when you're dealing with trusts because it's difficult to show the same underlying economic ownership in relation to a trust. Yeah, it's in a discretionary trust, the distribution's changed yeah, every yeah. year. So you can, you can often address that by making family trust elections. So then um, the tax office accepts that that's reasonable in terms of making that. So then that can show that. It would be probably better if it was drafted differently and that it spoke about same beneficiaries or something like that. Uh, but that's what we have at the moment. The other one, which is the genuine restructure, as I said, it comes back to the, the facts at the time in terms of why we did the restructure. And like with most things, you don't generally restructure for tax purposes. There are other reasons for doing it. So, But there is a safe harbour rule which says that in the three years after the transaction, there's no change in the ultimate owner. So our entity that was the owner at the time is still the owner. Significant assets continue to be active assets and there hasn't been significant or material use of assets for private purposes, then we're deemed to have been a genuine restructure. That is uh, the safe harbour rule. So if we meet that, then we meet the genuine restructure requirement. Of course, we have that three-year window where we have to maintain those things. So it's not something that's relevant if we're moving to introduce some other third-party equity participants. So in that case, we really have to go back to, well, what is our reason? Is this a genuine restructure? And so, I mean, some of the examples that are given by the tax office in terms of what they don't think are genuine are where you're restructuring just before a sale, so you can do particular things. So that leads us to a position where it's there's a couple of unclear things in the requirements of 328G. So we have two choices then. We either do it and we rely on advice in terms of, well, you meet the requirements, or we apply for a ruling from the tax office. And as I said, the issue generally with rulings is a time frame issue. Most often clients will want to do this at a particular date. So they'll want to start the new financial year, for example, in a new entity or at the end of a reporting period, unless we're making our private ruling application well before that. Then how it's long does it usually take? It's, it's a bit of a how long is a piece of string. but um, Is it days, weeks, months, years? Weeks and months can be years. But generally speaking, you're probably looking at a three to six month process. So it has to be done well ahead of time. So that... Are there, are there the requirements for 328G? One of the main advantages of using it over the 122A rollovers, as I said, is that as part of it, you can pay consideration. So our receiving entity can pay the market value of the business. And that's ignored for the purposes of CGT in terms of that doesn't create a taxing event. The advantage of the receiving company doing that is that it may, then gives it a cost base. So if our business is worth $1 million dollars, and we, in effect, vendor finance it into the company for a million dollars, then we have a million dollar cost base in our company. And it doesn't trigger a capital gain on the party side that is receiving the million dollars? No, no, Not it doesn't. No. Um, so then what that also does in terms of, uh, we mentioned before that one of the, the issues with 122A and 122B is that we have the same person holding the shares. Under this rollover, we can introduce a new trust. So we are getting a, a new clean skin entity there, which improves our asset protection perspective and allows us to leave things in the past in terms of the old business. Of course, we have to remember that we still have, until it's paid out, we still have a debt there between the company and, and the trust. So that until that's paid out, then that's not going to, in reality, that's not going to 
sorry, that's, that's still going to lead to some issues in terms of asset protection there in relation to that. The other thing we can do, and this is more as a bit of planning, is that we could have a look at also dealing with existing unpaid present entitlements. So just to briefly recap on unpaid present entitlements, traditionally and historically, tax planning for a business operating in a trust has been to distribute income to, I'll use a mum and dad example, to mum and dad, to the maximum amount, around 180000 and then distribute the rest to a company. And often that's left unpaid, which creates an unpaid present entitlement. The idea behind the, that distribution method is obviously to tax, sorry, to cap the tax rate at approximately 30% or whatever the corporate tax rate is. In 2010, we saw the release of the Commissioner's ruling 2010-3, uh, which was released in draft on the 16th of December 2009, which said that he now takes the view that if you have an unpaid and present entitlement between a, a private company and a trust and their associates of each other, and then that is in effect a loan. And so we have to, division seven eight. Yeah. So you have to pay that down over seven years or put it on a sub-trust arrangement or, or something along those lines. That, that ruling's been in place for a while now. The legislation is due to change 1 July 2019 to actually formalise the Commissioner's view as legislation. But what we could do if we're doing a 328G rollover is that part of our consideration could be the assumption of that liability to the old corporate beneficiary. And it's a little bit hard to describe without a diagram, but say, for example, we had our trading trust and it had an unpaid present entitlement to Beneficiary Co. And just because I'm a lawyer and I'm not great with numbers... Uh, let's say that that entitlement was $1 million and the business was worth $1 million. If we meet our requirements of 328G, we could roll over the business assets into a new trading company. And again, preferably with a new trust holding the shares in relation to that new company. Part of our consideration could be the assumption of that million-dollar liability. So what then in effect happens is that we have a loan, <coughs> sorry, liability between Beneficiary Co. and New Trade Company as opposed to what we had before, which was the unpaid present entitlement between the trust and beneficiary co. Under Division 7A, amounts that are owed between companies are ignored. So it doesn't make the liability disappear. It's still there. A million dollars still has to be paid at some stage to beneficiary co. However, it puts it on terms that are excluded from Division 7A. So as I mentioned before, it could be potentially used as a bit of a best of both worlds, where we're having a new cost base in, this, in that example of a million dollars, uh, in our new trading company and we're also dealing with our old existing unpaid present entitlements so that we're not subject to Division 7A uh, in relation to them and we don't have to make annual repayments or those sorts of things in relation to it. So it could, there is an opportunity there. As I mentioned before, one of the main issues with 320AG is genuine, whether we're a genuine restructure and whether there's the same underlying economic ownership. So it's not as simple as 122A and 122B, but there are opportunities. You mentioned before that it is possible to combine 122A and 328G. How does the combination of those two work? Uh, I don't think I did. Okay, um, good. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I did. Good. Yeah. So that, that's the, the role of... Because you can't combine those two. It's either... Yeah, yeah. You, you can't combine it. And I think, um, like, I'm sorry, I should say technically probably you could combine them, but the tax office take a view where you where you restructure in order to meet the requirements of a concession and then you use that concession, which would in this case would be 328G, or you do a series of rollovers to achieve that purpose, they can in effect ignore that, or depending on what you're trying to do at the end of the day. And if you're putting yourself into a position where they, you, you can use that concession, they can disallow that concession. So um, that's one of the risks with that. Yeah. So it's better not to combine 
122 and 328. Yep. It's better to yep. go clearly for one or the other. Yeah, and that's, again, having a look at the client circumstances and objective as to what is the best for them. And, and quite often what you end up doing with clients is you'll, you'll run through the rollovers and, you'll, and the positives and the negatives of each, and then you'll also run through a sale as well as an alternative and using something like small business concessions and what are the good things and the bad things about that. Quite often you come back to a sale at the end of the day because it's just a little bit, 122A and B have their negatives. 328G is a little bit uncertain in terms of some of the requirements, so quite often it's safer and more prudent for the client to do a sale and use small business concessions. That's always a combined decision then. When you look at the CGT rollover provisions, you always also look at the small business CGT concessions and vice versa. I mean, as long as, of course, it's not a genuine sale to a third party, yep. then, of course, you only have the small yep. business CGT concessions and not the rollover. That, that's right. You, you've got to examine all the opportunities for the clients. And then we, we always say internally, as an advisor, our role is to say, well, these are your options and we think you should do this because that is the best for you. So you do you do have to give the clients advice. You can't just say to them, well, these are the three options or four options up to you as to which you think is the best. You, you, you can't sit on the fence in respect of that. So then in terms of that, the sale of the business as the alternative, one you would look at is applying, because if we're moving from a trust to a company, the first concession that you would look to use is the discount capital gain. So if we've held the assets for more than 12 months, which is likely, and then we can apply that. And then after that, use the small business concessions in Division 152. And we will cover that in, an, in another session or in, a, in another presentation in terms of looking at those concessions and how they can be utilised in practice. A benefit of a sale over... 122A, for example, is again, we have a new cost base in our company. We can have a completely new entity, new trust shareholders, for example, for asset protection reasons. So again, we're quarantining our existing risk, recognising that quite often there will be vendor finance between them, so we do have to repay it. And, a, and another advantage may be that if we're getting close to exceeding the requirements for the small business concessions, that we're locking in our available concessions now. I know you can't say definite, one always has to look at the exact case. If a client qualifies, it's probably always better to go for the small business CGT concessions because there is the risk that the business booms, you go past the maximum yep. net as a value test and then you don't get any concessions. So yep. it's probably better to lock them in whenever you can. That, that's right. And that's generally the advice you're giving at the end of a fact find or at the end of a briefing from a client is to look at the small business concessions, particularly yeah. where they're getting close to the two limits. And the two main limits you need to consider are the two million turnover, which is quite easy for a client to exceed, and then the six million net asset position, because they are hard drop-dead limits. Once you're over both of yeah, those, you, you, you don't meet the concessions. So, And they haven't moved. In terms of those limits, they haven't moved in at least 10 years now. So it's it's one of those things that, is it realistic, a $2 million turnover and $6 million net asset position? They are quite low in terms of a growing business. And it's not too hard, not too, too long before a, a very fast growing business will be exceeding that. So there are quite a few other ones that are relevant to different marriage structures. Breakdown. Yeah, um, marriage breakdown. Testamentary trust rollover. Yeah, there is another small business rollover within the small business concessions. Again, that requires you to meet the small business concession and won't, wouldn't be relevant in this sort of scenario because it's the same taxpayer has to hold the, the assets. 
but there there are other rollovers that apply depending on the circumstances. As you mentioned, marriage uh, breakdown of marriage rollover. When we're dealing with company structures, there are script for script rollovers as well as what you consider exchange of well interposition interposition of a new holding company. Those sorts of things. Same applies to unit trusts as well. So there are some other rollovers out there. But in if we're looking at moving a um, if we're looking at clients that are operating in a trust that want to move to a company, for example, the, the three main ones that we're going to rely on or look at are, are the ones that we've spoken about today. Mm. And they, they are more your bread and butter? Yeah, very, very much so. Welcome back. I liked Adrian's comment about locking in the available small business CGT concessions when we can, that they are hard drop-dead limits. <laughs> I think that phrase is very good. I think it really hits it on the head. But if you don't meet the basic conditions, then the CGT rollovers might be a good a second option, or third or fourth. In the next episode, episode 79, we will talk with IP Australia about trademarks, what they are, how they are different to a business name or a legal name or a domain name, and why you and I and our clients should or shouldn't consider registering a trademark. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.